Hello and welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Lisa Pullman. Dr. Pullman is an associate professor of clinical pathology at Kansas State University. She has also authored and co-authored multiple very popular articles for Clinician's Brief. One of the most recent can be found in the June 2021 edition of Clinician's Brief, and it's entitled Top 5 Fine Needle Biopsy Sample Collection and Handling Errors. I had to practice that title a few times before we recorded today. (laughs) How are you doing, Dr. Pullman? I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. Before we dive into this topic today, would you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what drew you to clinical pathology? Sure. So I graduated from vet school um, from the University of Guelph, Ontario Veterinary College in 2001. And then I spent three years in small animal practice. And, And during that time, I found the stuff that really I was drawn to and then the stuff that also frustrated me that I wanted to learn more about. So first, I think that one of the things that really frustrated me was IMHA um, and a lot of us see IMHA. And so that was one of the things that I really wanted to learn more about, which I think also drew me to ClinPath. But I aspirated everything as a practitioner and I would, you know, look at the slide and then if I was able, if the client could afford to send it off, I would send it off and I'd hold back a slide and I'd make my little notes and then I'd compare what I thought to what the clinical pathologist thought. And occasionally I was correct, but very often I was not correct. And so that was one of the things that really excited me and then eventually why I did uh, residency in ClinPath. All right. So that you could get better at matching those up. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Now now people come to you for that. So (laughs) yeah. So I will tell you, you know, as a general practitioner, there are few things as soul crushing and frustrating to me as when I get back that path report that starts out, there were not enough intact cells to make a diagnosis. And I always feel like I have let the client down, that I have let the patient down. So I was so excited, you know, when I first read your article in order to glean some, some really practical tips and tricks so that I can get a diagnostic sample the first time and hopefully, you know, not be calling people and requesting that they bring their animal back in so that I can try again. So I have to admit, you know, I've done hundreds of fine needle biopsies over my career. And after reading through your article, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm making all of these mistakes. (laughs) So your article details actually two different techniques, the non-aspiration technique and the aspiration technique. And you pretty strongly recommend the non-aspiration technique for most needle biopsies. So could you summarize those two techniques for the audience and tell us why you prefer the non-aspiration technique? Sure. So the non-aspiration technique, and I'm going to call it the woodpecker technique, just so that's what I talk about when I'm teaching students all the time, but also I won't misspeak by saying aspiration, non-aspiration. So generally, just woodpecker technique is the non-aspiration technique. Okay, and so this is when you take just the needle or a needle attached to an air-filled syringe, and that is what you're using then to collect the sample. So in this case, there's going to be no negative pressure, no sucking of those cells from the tissue or mass that you are aspirating. So basically one hand, and usually it's your non-dominant hand, is going to isolate 
the tissue or the mass that you're aspirating. And then with your dominant hand, you've got just the needle or the needle with an air-filled syringe. And then you're going to enter the mass and redirect several times. And just that motion of redirection with the needle with no suction will often collect, uh, in fact, most of the time collect an adequate number of cells for cytologic analysis. So then you remove the needle from the tissue and then you have to, if you have your air-filled syringe attached, then you can just use that and, and quickly plunge the the plunger, and so you're expelling that sample onto the slide. If you were just using the needle, which is what I tend to do, then you are going to attach that needle onto an air-filled syringe and then very quickly plunge that needle to get that sample out. And and one of the things that I think is really important is um, having some force so that air really quickly gets that sample onto the slide. Sometimes when I'm teaching students, one of the errors that I'll see is they are pushing that plunger pretty slowly. And so that sample doesn't get out quickly. It may dry in the uh, needle. And so you aren't getting that sample onto your slide quickly so that then you can make your squash preparation. For the aspiration technique, um, basically I go to this when I don't think I'm getting anything or I'm not sure if I'm getting anything, you know, I'm looking at the slide and I say, oh, I'm not sure there's anything there. Then immediately I can just say, okay, we're going to do an aspiration technique. And so that then I know that, well, I've, I've done my best with aspiration here to get a sample. And so for that, what you do is you take your needle and it is attached to an empty syringe. And so then you enter the mass, and then you pull the plunger back once, okay? So not multiple times where you're really sucking, 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 because then you're going to pop the cells. So you just pull the plunger back once, and so you've got this negative pressure, and then you redirect in the mass multiple times while that negative pressure is on, but you don't exit the mass while that pressure is there. So if you accidentally exit the mass while you're redirecting, then what you have in your sample or for your sample is going to end up in the barrel of the syringe, which isn't great because it's going to be harder to get out. And so you're just redirecting with the, the negative pressure. And then before you pull that needle out, you're going to release that negative pressure. You take your needle out, then take the needle off of the syringe, fill it with air, and then put it back on the needle so you can expel that sample onto your glass slide. That's a really good point about coming out of the sample accidentally. And I, I, I know I've done that. Sometimes you can hear it when if you yes. pop out of the, the mass or, or whatever, and you've got that negative pressure on the syringe, you'll yeah. hear the air suck in there. So when that happens, discard that one, start again, you think? Yeah, I mean, if you have, if you're able to get, I will always take what I have in the needle. I mean, you can still try to get that sample. It's just that it's going to be a little bit harder when you end up especially if you don't have a lot and we don't want a lot of blood. And that's, that's really the problem with the aspiration technique is that you end up with a lot of blood and blood is a contaminant in cytology. It makes the slides often very, very thick. Sometimes, you know, when, when you always hear about a monolayer from clinical pathologists, it's really hard to get a good monolayer when it's, there's so much hemodilution. The other thing is, is that there's a little more protein in there. So the cells are a little bit more balled up. So finding those nice cells to be able to assess is 
much, much, much more difficult, even if there is a monolayer in there. So if I've made my sample and I'm going to send it out to a reference lab, do you recommend that I look at it in-house like you did, stain it and look at a sample to make sure that I've got a good quality? I do. I think that's really helpful for your own learning. I would say not to necessarily stain what you think might be the best slide. Um, And so, because if that is the only slide that has cells, then the issue then is that with regard to staining, you know, most reference laboratories, the clinic pathologists there like to use their own stain. The stain is slightly different. It's similar. It's in the same class. It's a Romanowski type stain, which is what the quick stains are. But, you know, they are a bit better at uh, detecting the cellular details. So I would say, you know, stain one that you think is pretty good, but maybe not your best slide. And then submit multiple because, you know, it's, it's always a bit of an issue if we only get one slide and it doesn't have adequate cellularity, you know, or the cells are all ruptured. But yeah, I think it's always great if you can look at the slide. And then when you get the report back, you can then learn from that and think about what you saw. Excellent. And then I assume those, if I'm staining one in-house and I do end up sending that out as well, make sure I haven't put oil or anything on it, correct? (laughs) Um, That's not as, I mean, we have to remove the oil, but that's not as detrimental as one might think because we have solutions that we can remove the oil. Um, So that's, you know, I would send that anyway. Okay, good. That's, that's a great, that's good to know. (laughs) Sometimes I do look at it and I was like, oh shoot, this is a good one, but I didn't want to send it because it was full of oil. (laughs) Yeah, no, we can remove the oil. That's not a problem. And then we're often going to add oil anyway. So So sometimes if I have an ulcerated mass, you know, an ulcerated dermal mass, Mm -hmm. like, you know, a histiocytoma, I suspect a histiocytoma or a plaque-like lesion like that, I'll I'll make an impression smear of the the top, you know, ulcerated part of Mm -hmm. that that mass. Is that helpful at all or should I just skip that? (laughs) No, impression smears are great. And The thing is, is sometimes they're very helpful, especially if it's a very small mass and you're not able to get, you know, a good aspirate. The problem is, is if it's ulcerated and if we're just seeing mostly neutrophils and bacteria, it really doesn't tell us about necessarily the primary lesion. So that inflammation could be the primary lesion, but there may be a primary lesion underneath. So all it's going to tell us about is the surface. Now we may get our answer certainly from, from an impression smear, but we might not. So I always think, the more information, the better. If you make an impression smear, label it as an impression smear so that it's not confusing because if we're unsure, you know, is and, and usually you can tell by looking at the slide, but um, it's just, okay, this is an impression smear. And then we've got the aspirate as well so that we can put all that information together to give you an interpretation of what's going on. So the more detailed, the better on the submission forms. Yes. Yes, history is always good because, you know, we don't have architecture. And so we're just going with these, you know, free free cells on the slide, which is a little bit more difficult in the sense people often think, oh, but, you know, you should be able to tell. Well, it's histopathy. You, know, you can usually tell the tissue, but you can't always tell what the tissue is with cytology if you don't have the uh, history and such. So, Are more people sending in digital photographs with their submissions? 
it varies. We do get some. I like lots of information. I think getting images of the lesion can be really helpful. Certainly with patients that are in hospital, you know, if you can walk down the hall, then that's always helpful. But when they're mailed in, that's not possible. So images are are great. So yeah, so more information, the better. Awesome. All right. Well, moving on, the next pitfall you discuss in your article is needle and syringe size. So what is your go-to needle size for most masses and why is that? Um, I think the 23 gauge needle for most masses is my just go-to. Um, now, if I feel the mass and it's really hard, I'll probably go to a 22. I rarely will go to a 25. Generally, the range of needle sizes that you'll use for a fine needle aspirate for most cutaneous, subcutaneous lesions is going to be 22 to 25 with 22 and 23 probably the most common. The softer the lesion, the smaller your gauge, you know, so you may want to go, you know, 23 to 25. But like I said, I usually use a 23. Um, but if it's, if it's really much firmer, I'll go to a 22. Now, the syringe size isn't really a big deal for the woodpecker technique, you're just using it to expel the sample. And so, you know, I'll, I will even often use a 3cc and just put lots of pressure, like, you know, rapidly put, push that plunger. But it's much more of an issue when you're doing the aspiration technique, especially if it's a poorly exfoliative sample and you really want to suck some of those cells out. So I go to probably a 10 to 12cc syringe if I'm using the aspiration technique. Okay. So quite a large syringe then actually. Yeah. I mean, you can try, you know, a 5cc. It's just, you want to make sure you're getting that negative pressure. Mm -hmm. Your third common misstep is localization error. And so my biggest takeaway here was that personally, I'm not redirecting enough. And you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but how many times should we be redirecting that needle? My recommendation is uh, six to eight. You know, if I imagine myself, you know, right now doing an aspirate, I'm thinking, okay, if I count quickly, I'm going to say generally I will routinely do six, maybe eight redirections. There is some evidence that if there are less than four, then the, the cellularity of the sample is decreased. So it is important to get those redirections. It's also really important if you think about, like if you're doing a lymph node aspirate and you want to make sure that you're getting a representative sample of the node and, and any lesion, but I, I think nodes are good in the sense where, you know, you've got the various architecture throughout the node and you want to make sure that you, that is represented on the slide and that you aren't just aspirating, for example, a germinal center. Um, so you want to get that whole representative sample so that we can make a, an interpretation on what's going on with the lesion. Right. That makes total sense since the architecture does change slightly, you know, throughout the lymph node. The final two errors you describe, they encompass slide preparation and also shipping. So can you tell us about the squash prep and why that might be a bit of a misnomer? <laughs> yeah. So, and um, you know, we use this this term squash prep all the time, yet we really don't want to squash our cells, you know, because cells are really, really fragile. And so basically when you're making the squash prep and, you know, you've got the, the bottom slide where the, the slide that the sample was expelled onto. And so then you're just dropping that top slide on and you don't put additional pressure. You just drop that on. And so, and then you can wait a few 
seconds for it to sort of start spreading apart. And um, you're not, you know, trying to press it to press it, press it to spread apart. You're just letting it spread on the slide. And then you're going to, you know, gently just take those slides and horizontally separate them. So it's not a vertical separation where you'll pop cells. It's just this nice, gentle slide over slide movement so that the, the cells will go into a monolayer and spread out over the slide, but not be squashed, as we are saying in the name of the preparation. And then do you recommend that, I mean, if we have them that you submit the spreader slide as well? So sometimes I'll take my spreader slide and that's the one I'll look at in-house just to kind of see, but... Generally, I don't tend to look at my spreader slide, but you can and you certainly can submit it. I, I think that might be, if there is a limit on how many slides you can submit to the laboratory, because there are limits on at some laboratories, then I would say probably, you know, um, you want to make sure you're submitting slides that are cellular and of good, reasonably good quality that you can tell. So depending on how much you have, you think on that slide. I mean, that's, if you think you're getting good samples on your spreader slide, and that's one that's good for you to look at by all means, if you've looked at it and you think it's good, submit it. Okay, excellent. And then lastly, your article, you talk about tips to prevent slide breakage during transport. Um, there's some some nice pictures of, of different packaging in there. But you also offer up this little gem that unstained slides should be packaged separately from formalin containing samples. And so this is something that I'll admit I had no idea. And this this happened to me once. So I was sending in a mass for histopath and I had done needle biopsies from a regional lymph node uh, at the time of surgery. The mass was in a formalin jar, the slides were in their hard plastic slide container, but I had put them together and didn't realize that the formalin would damage the slides. So how far apart do these samples need to be kept? Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they need to be in separate packages. Separate packages, you can't mail them in. And it's not worth it because, you know, formalin fumes are so detrimental to cytology. And, you know, even if occasionally you do get that we can read the sample, probably more often than not, it, it's going to affect the interpretation. And so usually we can just look at the slide and just say, oh, this is from formalin fumes. And we can tell you the reason, um, but sometimes you may just get non-diagnostic sample um, depending on how severely or how easily they're identifying that it is formalin fumes. So my recommendation is just keep them separate. Um, it's unfortunate, but you just pass that cost on to the client. And even when you are putting them out for pickup, I would keep those separate just to make sure. I mean, I've even seen, I was working with a clinic at one time, this was a number of years ago, and their laboratory was sort of a, um, basically they'd taken an old closet and it had, you know, it was a, a fairly big closet, but then they had these bifold doors that they could shut to, you know, close off the lab and the formalin was in there. Um, and if the slide sat on, you know, the formalin was under the counter and then the slides might sit overnight on the counter and then periodically, you know, and they weren't submitting their slides with 
um, formalin tissue or the mm -hmm. tissue for histopath. And so we were trying to figure out, well, why are they often getting these slides that look like they've been exposed to formalin? And so they we ended up moving that, or I suggested, we'll try moving the formalin once I realized how their lab was set up to a different area and not leaving your slides near that. And then the problem resolved. So formalin fumes, in fact, formalin fumes are actually worse than dipping your slide in formula. I don't recommend that either, but it's the fumes. I just did a little uh, experiment just trying to reproduce some of these things when I was trying to get some slides to show students. And it was the fumes that caused the worst degeneration of those cells. Wow, that is so interesting. So, so yeah, that was definitely my question because a lot of general practitioners and, and well, even um, you know, specialty centers, they'll have a, you know, a box to put out slides overnight if the lab comes later after they've, mm -hmm. so, so just keep those formalin containers out of that box. Or you can leave, put the formalin containers in the box and leave, you know, and have a little box on top with your slides, um, mm -hmm. just as long as they're separate. Looking for that special clinician or veterinary nurse to fill your job opening? Job seekers from all areas of veterinary medicine can meet their ideal match on the Clinician's Brief Career Center. It's the best place to post your unique job opening and know it will be seen by that special someone. Get started at cliniciansbrief.com career center. So I'd love to know your opinion on fine needle biopsy of bony lesions, especially, you know, lesions that are radiographically suspicious for osteosarcoma. So, and, and that's a, a, the technique for aspirating those is going to be similar, but I will go to a bigger needle size. Now, I mean, we've got the proliferative and lytic lesions. So if they're more proliferative, you're going to probably need a, a larger size needle, you know, so I would say, you know, 18 gauge. And then if they're more on the lytic side, I would say, you know, a 20 gauge-ish, that's kind of what I would recommend there. And if they're really, really lytic, I, I have seen, you know, ones where, you know, a 22 gauge is used and they're fine. But generally, you know, I think about 18 to, to 20 gauge needle for those with uh, the more lytic lesions being the smaller gauge needle. It's important to think about where you're going in there because, you know, normal bone doesn't exfoliate very well. And so you want to make sure you're more in the center of the lesion than at the edge, because at the edge, you may hit some normal area where you're not getting sample. And so you're much more likely to get a better sample if you are in the center of the lesion. Is there a different way to prepare those slides or do you still recommend the squash prep? in order to try to um, make them on the squash prep. I mean, those are often really bloody slides. One of the things that is often really fruitful because sometimes when you are getting those, it, it really varies on how exfoliative those lesions are and how much you get from an aspiration. Sometimes we get a fair amount and sometimes we don't get a lot. But 
generally for when a sample is taken for histopathology, if you do an impression smear from that where you can get, you know, a report much sooner than you're going to get your histopathology results, you can do an impression smear from that sample, which is often really productive. What is important when you're making that is to make sure you dab off the excess blood. And with any impression smear that you do, you really don't want that excess blood there. But these bone lesions are often very, very bloody. So you want to blot off that excess blood and then you can do your impression smear from that biopsy. Most of the time you get a fairly cellular sample from that. And then do you recommend special staining? I know they have special stains for ALP. Does that help with those types of slides? So it does. I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily plan to do it no matter what, because as the general practitioner submitting the sample, you don't know if this is, you know, it's potentially lytic. Well, it could be, you know, osteomyelitis or, you know, certainly it could be osteosarcoma, but there's different possible different causes. So only if we are thinking that potentially this is an osteosarcoma or we think it's a malignant lesion and we're trying to identify the cell origin, then I um, absolutely alkaline phosphatase is really helpful in identifying that the cells as osteoblasts. But I wouldn't go to that initially, you know, right away and just say, okay, I want a cytology with alkaline phosphatase. You might say, as needed, uh, it is, you know, approved so that then you're saving time in that regard. But um, certainly if it ends up being like an osteomyelitis, you know, you don't necessarily, you don't need that. Then we wouldn't have needed to do that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So these were wonderful, wonderful tips. Great, you know, great information. But there still are sometimes stubborn, poorly exfoliating masses, even if, you know, we do everything right. So this is a place, do you have any advice when we do have to call that owner about how to talk to clients or even how to prep them before we even, you know, when we're taking the sample about the possibility of non-diagnostic samples? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to explain to them that, you know, this is a non-invasive, really low stress for the patient, low cost, potentially very useful tool or diagnostic test that we can get some good information. Although we might not, but it's not a super expensive test and, you know, could save us from having to do a general anesthesia. So it's worthwhile in that regard. So potentially, yes, you might get a diagnosis, but if you don't get a diagnosis. If you get some direction on where to go, that can be helpful. So um, what's the next step? If it is neoplastic, you know, then you know you need to get margins. If it's inflammatory or you're, you know, thinking you've got some answer there, you don't have to take it to surgery. So you can get some really good information. And if it's non-diagnostic, you haven't spent a lot of money trying to get that information so you're not that much further behind and then you have to you know go forward with more invasive or other testing did that help yes (laughs) yes it does because like i said you know we always i think for me when i'm recommending tests you know and then to have to go back and say well, this test came back inconclusive. Now we have to do something else. So so it's nice to be able to prep them and say, this might happen. And if it does, even, mm-hmm. even if it's not conclusive, 
it still helps us plan on where to go forward from there and just, you know, being open yeah. and honest with the owner. Yeah. So, and so I yeah. Think, yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, taking multiple samples, you know, um, there's a lot of times that we get one slide and it's always a shame if that slide is non-diagnostic, you know, so if you can get multiple, you know, do a woodpecker technique and a aspiration technique, especially if sometimes you just know, you know, on your woodpecker technique, you got lots of sample and you don't have to go to another type of aspiration or impression. Um, but if you then say, okay, I'm just going to immediately go, I, I'm not sure I got a good sample here. So I'm going to do my aspiration technique. And yes, it takes a little bit longer, but it takes a lot less time in the long run than bringing the animal back in and having to have a conversation with the owner that you didn't get a good sample. At least this way you say, okay, I've done what I can. And if it's a, a poorly exfoliated mass, you know, you did what you could and you then can move on to your next step feeling like, well, it, it's the mass. It's not my technique. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, before I let you go today, there is a little game that we like to play at the end of our episodes. Um, it's it's very easy, non-stress. It's actually just a few okay. kind of, <laughs> yay. <laughs> yeah, so it's just a few would you rather questions. All right, so we'll get started. Would you rather practice without a microscope or without a chemistry analyzer? Uh, I Personally, I think without it. Chem, oh, I, me. <laughs> so you're talking about as a general practitioner. Uh, no, I'm about you. These are questions just for you. Just for me. I like my microscope. You, I, I thought you were going to say your microscope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. If you had to, would you rather redo your uh, veterinary medical residency or would you rather redo high school? Oh, my residency by far. Res my residency were some of the best years of my life. I would redo oh, that in a heartbeat. That's yeah, wonderful. And, and I got, you know, all my students that say, oh, I'm, you know, if they're not, if, if they were initially, you know, sometimes they come in and they want to do a specialization and then they say, oh, I'm not sure I can go through another three years of residency. You know, I always say compared to vet school, not disin vet school, but I found my residency so, so much more enjoyable because you're focusing on what you love and hopefully are good at. And yeah. Yeah. Would you rather invent a new diagnostic procedure or would you rather discover a drug that cures a serious medical condition? Uh, I suppose, I suppose as a clinical pathologist, I'm supposed to say develop a new diagnostic procedure, but um, I think uh, it would be a greater impact if there was some sort of medication or something that was um, invented that would cure, you know, uh, a serious illness. Yeah. So they could just hear, here's, here's a pill. No, no more IMHA. How's that? That would, that would be awesome. Wouldn't it? All right. It last would. one. And I always save the most important one for last. So if you had to attend a very important social event, would you rather go with diff quick stain all over your fingers or the faint smell of formalin in your hair? Oh, stain all over my fingers. I can't, <laughs> I can't stand the smell of formalin. <laughs> all right. Well, that was it. I hope you enjoyed playing. Yeah, that's it. And thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. And um, we hope to see you again in the future. Yeah, look forward to it. 
Thanks again to today's guest for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to our podcast on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Clinicians Brief and on Instagram at clinicians.brief or drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery, sound by Randall Stupka, and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson.